Good afternoon again. Um, you may have noticed in the back of the bulletin, uh, next to the announcements, the page about our Midtown Easter Mercy offering. We did uh, last year the borehole in Kenya, and it was such an encouragement to me to watch your generosity for that. Um, and Nancy Price and Julie are going in April to be there for the dedication of the school, which is possible because they have water and can be there year-round. And so that was very encouraging. Um, this year, our goal is a little bit more modest because so many of you have already been giving uh, for the Jamshidi family, the Afghan refugees that we're sponsoring as a church. Um, but we're not limited to $12,000 for the MTW Ukrainian fund or... Well, we are only going to give 3000 to the log splitting in the Navajo Nation because that's all it costs. Um, D.H. and Emily Henry live in Flagstaff, work on the Navajo Nation. It's one of the uh, people that our church supports regularly. Uh, their work with the Navajo there. Um, and so they have a mercy ministry that involves uh, getting heating and cooking wood to people. Apparently, uh, a large percentage of people on the Navajo Nation do not have running water or electricity. And it's cold up there. So um, this log splitting thing, especially as people age, becomes more and more of a burden. It's a way the church is reaching out. And so that's why we're contributing to that. The Ukrainian fund is, uh, is for the churches that we are sister churches with in Ukraine, primarily to be able to take care of refugees who have had to flee the eastern part of the nation and have gone either to the far west of Ukraine or over into Poland. Um, Julie and I actually got to be at the service where the Presbytery was formed uh, for the Ukrainian church. And you don't need to know that, but I just wanted to tell you that. <laughs> it was a special thing because uh, the mission uh, group that had gone over there right after the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, saw a huge revival happening. God's uh, spirit was at work, rejuvenating the church, bringing many people to faith in Jesus. And all these churches were formed, and the Western missionaries were able to hand it all completely over to the uh, indigenous pastors there. And so uh, it has a special place in our heart, and those are the pastors who are trying to take care of their flocks as they are scattered now. And so through Mission to the World, uh, we're contributing to this fund to help relieve the plight and enable the churches to care for the people who are there um, and displaced. So that's what that money's going for. If you give to this, you need to let me know, especially if you regularly give to the church, because it'll, it might just go in the regular pot otherwise. There's a phone number on the back of the bulletin that's my phone number. You can text me, and my uh, email is in, in the notes. Just let me know if you sent something and say, hey, designate this for uh, you for the Easter Mercy offering or Ukraine or uh, however you want to do that. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, our sermon. If you uh, want to turn there in a Bible or in the bulletin where the same text is printed. Um, this isn't just announcements. This is the sermon. But we're having a congregational meeting, our first congregational meeting. Uh, and I know this has got you all at Twitter and excited. A congregational meeting, like a real-life church, on April 10th. And we're going to elect our own officers that day. And this is uh, the precursor to May 1st, the day when the Presbytery is going to come and organize us as a particular church. Up until now, we've been a mission church. The leadership has been moi. 
And uh, that's really not very biblical for long. And so we're going to elect elders and deacons. And we'll have those elections on April 10th. And then the big celebration worship service is May 1st. And we're going to have a big potluck in the courtyard afterwards. We're going to invite friends from the other churches around town to come celebrate with us, uh, to give thanks to God, and launch out as a particular church which is just the kind of poetic name you would expect Presbyterians to come up with for something like this. But that's what we got. It's a particular church. That's what we're doing. Uh, tonight, our uh, prospective officers are being examined uh, on theology and Bible and church government uh, in a surprisingly rigorous exam. Uh, so they'll be prepared, and those who come through that alive and orthodox will be on the ballot on the 10th of April for you uh, to vote for. So uh, just note those things and know that those are coming up. Um, and the reason I mentioned that at the beginning of the sermon is that we're, we're entering into kind of an uh, organizational time in the church. And for most people I know in the United States, the idea of organization and religion you know, don't go together. <laughs> Organized religion bad, uh, inauthentic, unspiritual, sterile. We don't like organized religion. And the passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus organizing his religion. And he's appointing officers for his church for the first time and calling the 12 apostles, uh, those who are going to uh, hold this unique office in the church. But it's structural, it's organizational. And it's intended to be so by Jesus. Uh, we're going to talk about kind of the tension we feel between the vital and organic parts of what it means to be a church together and to have faith in Jesus and the organizational parts that um, are necessary for the organism to thrive. And I'm going to argue for you to care a little bit more about the organizational side because most of us naturally care more about the organic side and rightly so. So that's kind of where we're going with this. Uh, the, the appointing of the 12 apostles, and he lists their names. And if you're reading the Bible and you're thinking, okay, you know, I'm being good today, I'm reading my Bible, uh, and here I read this. Say, so, okay, well, Jesus, what, what am I supposed to learn from reading about the 12 apostles? I, maybe if I could memorize their names, I could win a question in a really hard trivia contest, right? If I could get them all. Maybe pass an officer's exam if they happen to ask the names of the 12 apostles. I'm not going to ask you the names of the 12 apostles. Why does it matter for us to know about the 12 apostles? Do you think you know? Because it's kind of a hard question. Um, if you listen to the New Testament reading that Grace did tonight, um, Paul said a remarkable thing. He said that the church is the new temple of God. The fulfillment of what the temple was always supposed to be, the place where God lives with His people. That's the church. And the foundation of that church is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are the foundation of our life with God, of our connection, of our life meeting with Him. They are the foundation of it. So when we confess, when we have time, the Nicene Creed at the end of the service... Uh, we say, I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. 
So we call those the marks of the church. Unity, holiness, catholicity, and apostolicity. If you use apostolicity in a sentence this week, you get a gold star. Um, but when we say the church is apostolic, what we mean is that it's founded on the apostles' teaching and it's engaged in the apostles' mission that Jesus gave them in the world. So the apostles were the first ones to, to uh, be given the teaching of Jesus to pass on to us and they were sent on his mission that he also now sends us on. And so they become formative for us and important to us because of that. So usually, I think what you do is this. You read a passage like this and you say, well, how am I like the apostles and what can I learn as an example from their life for me? Is that a good way to read the Bible? It's a pretty good way to read the Bible. It's fine. There are things that we learn about them. You know, we learn that... There are hotheads and slackers and betrayers and uh, power-hungry people, impetuous people, and one, that we shouldn't be like them, and two, that God is willing to love and use people like them. There's, there's a lot for us to learn by example from them. But what's more important when we read something like this is the big picture of what Jesus is doing in the world to rescue it and how this fits into what he's doing to come get us and rescue us and set the world back right. And so that's what we're going to try to focus on as we look at it tonight. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please um, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, beginning at verse 7 of Mark 3, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise be to you, O Christ. Somebody wrote a, a really popular book for people who think about how church works several years ago called The Trellis and the Vine. And as far as I know, it's a good book. I haven't read the book um, because I thought, I understand the analogy and it's very helpful, but I don't want to read your book. Um, the idea is that a church has to have like a, a fruitful vine, both the, the trellis and the vine. The trellis is the structure, the organizational part that the vine uh, is guided by so that it can grow and thrive and be fruitful. Uh, the vine is the real thing though, right? It is um, the organic part what you get the fruit from. It's why you have the trellis in the first place. And uh, 
So you have to have both the trellis and the vine if the plant is going to thrive and be fruitful. And I'm betting you're already following this, that that is also true of the church, right? We need the organic life of the vine to be fruitful, but we need a trellis or the vine's going to be weak and diseased and is not going to be and do what it was meant to be and do for us. So in the call of the 12 apostles, you kind of see both parts of this. Um, because Jesus calls them and he says, I want you to be with me. And it's the first thing he says. I, I, I want you to be with me. That's very vine, right? That's very organic. That's very much the uh, authentic part of the faith that we all embrace and appreciate so much. But then he also attaches them to his mission and organizes them to be his successors in the mission by sending them out to be his representatives, to extend what he's doing, preaching and uh, exercising demons, which was a big part of uh, their ministry in these early days. So you kind of got both things going on, as he calls the 12 apostles. Um, some of their experiences, like our experience, like we get called to be with Jesus. That's not just for the apostles. Um, and we also get uh, engaged in his mission. He sends us out to be his hands and feet in the world, to do... Uh, to be advancing his cause in the world. Uh, those things are true of us as well. But the big thing you see in him calling the twelve is the picture of what he's doing in the world, what he actually came to do to rescue us. And so I want us to look at that a little bit. I want us to talk first kind of about the vine part, the organic part, and then we'll talk about the trellis part, the structural organizational part in just a minute. But the vine part is that he calls them, in verse 14 he says... He appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. Might be with him. Um, it says up in uh, the beginning of this passage that uh, all these crowds were following him. And that's sort of literally they were following him around because he was healing them. But when he called the twelve, he'd already called uh, Levi, who's Matthew, and, uh, and James and John. Right? And he, when he called them, he said, follow me. And they didn't say, we are, <laughs> like everybody else, we're following you. He said, follow me in, the, in a different sense, right? I, I want you to be like the disciples. I'm your rabbi. You're my disciples now. Uh, you're going to be in close connection with me, and you're going to be uh, my representatives as well. So when he calls them to follow, that's what he means. He means, I want you to do more than like me, um, be a fan of me. I want you to do more than have good opinions about me, like the right doctrinal ideas and things, like, like if someone asks you on the survey, you know, who's your Savior, you say Jesus, you know, so I want you to actually, I want you to have a connection with me that's real and substantive. I want you to be with me. I want you to know me. Like I could send you out to say things, I could kind of tell you what to say and do, but if you don't know me, um, that's, that's going to be sterile anyway. You need to know my heart if you're going to represent my heart to people uh, as you go out. And so that's what he calls them to. Come be with me. Um, and this relational idea with God, very kind of an intimate connection with God, is a weird kind of religion. You know, it feels to most people in the world when they think about God, they think it would be over casual to say, I'm going to have this kind of close connection and relationship to him. But this is what he invites us into. Um, Dick Lucas 
uh, a great British pastor from a few years back, uh, surmised what it would be like if a Christian in Rome was explaining to their neighbor about the Christian faith. And so their neighbor would say, hey, I, I heard you're religious. That's great. I think religion's awesome. Um, so tell me about your religion. Like, where's your temple? Where's your holy place? Like, well, uh, we don't really have one. Um, Jesus is our temple. Like he, the place God dwells with us is in relationship with Jesus. Right? Um, so we don't really have a temple. He said, well, where do your priests work and do their rituals? Well, we don't really have priests in that sense because like, Jesus is our priest. Right? He's the one who mediates between us and God and does that directly. Well, but like, where do you where do you offer sacrifices to acquire favor from the gods? And we don't really do that either. Jesus is our sacrifice, and you know you think that'd be hard to explain to people who know what religion is but think Christianity is weird. You know, you have a hard time probably explaining the faith to your friends, but it's probably easier for you than it would have been in Rome, uh, because what Jesus invites us into is bizarre religiously, an intimate relationship with him where we actually know him, where we're with him, and he like wants us to be with him, which is remarkable. It right? uh, doesn't fit categories very well. But you know the thing about being with him is it means that if you're going to be representing Jesus and Christian religion to people, that it needs to be true experientially in your life. Or it's just going to be sterile and weird. And if you're going to talk to people about the grace of Jesus, where he accepts anybody, forgives anybody, and loves and welcomes anybody, uh, you're going to have to have some kind of firsthand experience of that where you know you've been blown away because Jesus has accepted and forgiven you. And you know what it means to receive grace when you don't deserve it at all. Because without that experience of being with him, you're not really going to be able to go out and communicate that to other people. You know, you'll probably go out and just be a scold if you haven't felt your own need for God's grace from being with Jesus. And so that's what he asks his disciples to do first. Um, I mean, it's worth asking yourself, does that idea of the Christian faith sound foreign to you? Like, being with Jesus, being connected to him that way, is it, does that feel like presumptuous, like only a really super Christian could feel close to Jesus that way? Or does that feel like just something you can't really imagine yourself being a part of? Uh, you have, you know, you're a Christian, not a Muslim, you know, or something, but you, but the idea of being with him sounds odd because you need to know that's, that's like straight up standard Christianity, you know, to know him. And if you, if you feel like you've been kind of dancing around the periphery of the Christian faith, but you don't really feel like you know him, um, I'd urge you to talk to your friends that brought you tonight or, or come talk to me or somebody and, and let's talk about how you go from knowing about Jesus and respecting Jesus to being with him. Because right? that's, that's, you know, 101 Christianity. And if that doesn't sound like your experience, we should talk. Right? So, um, if you have the trellis side of Christianity and religion without the being with me, the vine side, it's ugly. You know, it just is. And I think a lot of people, because they've had contact with the church in America and 
it's our fault a lot of the time. You know, they just sing the trellis and none of the vine and don't see the beauty and the light of being with him. And so they're kind of recoil from it. Um, you can't have just the trellis. But you also can't have just the vine. You need the trellis. You need some organization, uh, even with all the problems that organization seems to bring to us. So let's talk about that a little bit, because when Jesus called them, he didn't just say, I want you to be with me. He said, and I want you on my mission. I'm going to send you out as the officers, the, uh, the people appointed by God to fulfill this role in the church for me. Jesus appointed officers in his church right away. Um, we're about to do something similar. We are not going to appoint any apostles because there aren't any more. Um, sometimes we use that term a little loosely. The, these 12 are unique and not repeated in the Bible. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus from the beginning to his resurrection. You remember after Jesus betrayed uh, Jesus and died and they went to replace him, they had a criteria that was somebody who's an eyewitness of the resurrection. Somebody who's been with him. And uh, Matthias was elected, you remember. Some people think it really that Paul's really the 12th, and some people think it's Matthias, and those people will know one day who was right. <laughs> but um, why 12? Think, think Jewish people would hear the number 12 and think, hmm, 12 tribes of Israel, right? I mean, God's people... Uh, are organized on the, the uh, pattern of 12 here from the Old Testament. Jesus appointing 12 apostles points to the big story of this is what he came to do is to fulfill the story of the Old Testament. Like he's reconstituting the people of God uh, the way they've dreamed it could be, the way they've longed for it to be, the way they've been so frustrated that it isn't. He's finally come as the promised Messiah. Uh, a king like David, but greater than David. A prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Uh, to come to fulfill the promise of God to his people. The promise from early on, like this is the story of the whole Bible, where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to have mercy on you, and be in relationship with you, and I'm going to give you a family, and through your family, the whole world, all the nations in the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to set the world back right side up, and I'm going to do it through your family. And your family became Israel, right? And so from there on, you just have this stair step of success for Israel right up until the time Jesus comes when they pretty much have done their job in the world and just needed him to do the finishing touches, right? No. You ever read the Old Testament? It's so weird to try to follow the storyline of the Old Testament because it, it's like watching Lost. Did any of you ever watch Lost? You know, the story with no point. Like every week they tried to make up a new plot, but there was no big story. And you're like, what's going on? None of this makes any sense to me. I watched it to the end and I felt jet. But if you, read, if you read to the end of the Old Testament, you feel a little ripped off too because you're like, well, what, what happened? It just kind of stopped. You know, repeat and fade. Israel is wandering around foolishly rebelliously, not getting much better, and nobody seems to care about the nations, and nobody seems to care about really being delightedly connected to God and His grace, and it just kind of ends. 
And like the Old Testament passage we read tonight, you have all these longings of the prophets like, what happened? What happened? We, you, you act like we're not your people. You act like we didn't have the promises. Like Abraham doesn't even know us, is what Isaiah said in that passage. What, what happened? This was going to be the great plan. We were going to be the light to the nations. We were going to be your conduits of grace all over the globe. And here we are, just a few of us left in Israel, twiddling our thumbs and causing trouble. And Jesus comes to say, I'm fulfilling it. I'm going to reconstitute it. We're getting the Genesis 12, 3 plan back together, right? You're going to, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. I'm the true Israel. Uh, the 12 apostles now uh, are the representative heads of the reconstituted people of God. And now people with my heart, my heart for the nations are going to go out all over the globe and talk about the hope of the mercy of being reconciled to God and Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's saying, all of this is about me. The temple was about me. The laws were about me. All of it pointed to me, and now I'm here. And I'm appointing these 12 so that you will see that clearly and you will know it. And you see that as the uh, New Testament unfolds, the understanding of the apostles is sort of filled out on this, and they see that, the uh, like the Ephesians passage, it's the, the foundation for the whole church is the apostles and prophets. It's the Old Testament fulfilled by the new, right? the apostles and prophets. And then, I don't, are you familiar with this? And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, the next to last chapter, there's a description, kind of metaphorical description of the new creation when the world is finally fixed. And it's a description of the new Jerusalem is how it's described. And it says, over, over the gates of the 12 gates into the city of the new Jerusalem are inscribed the names of the patriarchs, Jacob's 12 sons. But the foundation stones, of which there are also 12, in the New Jerusalem have whose names on them? The apostles. Maybe Matthias, maybe Paul. We'll see. Right? But it's the apostles' names. Like, our understanding of what it means to be God's people and to know Him, to be with Him, is pretty wrapped up in who the apostles are. Right? And the reason that works out that way is because they were the only people appointed to speak for God. After Jesus came. Like he said, I'll bring to your mind everything that I've told you, and you go say what you've heard from me, what I've whispered in your ear, you proclaim on the housetops. You go speak for me. When they hear you, they hear me. Nobody else is told that. Like when they were all about to die and they started writing letters to their successors, they didn't say, Hey, here's how you get the secret scrolls to get the new revelation from God so you can tell everybody. No, they said, Hey, what we've given you, guard it. Guard it. Be careful with it. Devote yourselves to it. Entrust it to faithful people. Uh, the new information ends with them. Right? That's why the Bible is hardback, you know, or leather, or whatever. That's why they're going to have blank pages in the back to add new things in. Because the apostles were unique. And the church and our life with God is based on the faith that's been delivered to us through them as Jesus' appointed people. So, there are examples for us to follow in a lot of ways. But the big point here is what Jesus is doing in the world. He's reconstituting Israel. He's getting the game, he's getting the band back together, and it's going to work this time. Uh, he's fulfilling all the promises to Israel. 
And so the extension, the uh, succession plan for Jesus when he leaves is remarkable because he takes 12 ordinary people and very ordinary people and basically leaves it with them. These, these people are going to extend his ministry. They go and they preach in his name and they're told here also to have authority to cast out demons. And that was happening a lot around the time of Jesus in the early church. But you know, even, even by the end of the apostles' lives, that wasn't happening very much. You know, the, when they told Christians what to do about demons, which they rarely did, but when they did, they didn't say things like, uh, make sure you know how to do exorcisms right. You know, they said, no, resist the devil. He'll tempt you. He'll accuse you. Don't fall for it. They didn't say, uh, here's how you do the exorcisms. Um, because, again, that was unique in a, in a way. It doesn't mean it never happens now, but I don't guess, but... Uh, but with Jesus and the apostles, there was a, you know, a tremendous explosion of such activity that we don't see so much anymore and the, uh, that the apostles didn't anticipate as they prepared those who would follow after them. So um, the apostles' teaching is the trellis for the church. So before we give you people to vote on to be officers in the church, we're going to ask them if they understand the trellis, right? Are they apostolic in their approach to the faith? Are they with Jesus? And are they committed to the apostles' teaching? Because you have to have that. If you don't have a trellis, you know, the vine just falls on the ground, gets uh, stepped on, gets left in the mud, gets diseased, is not fruitful. You need a trellis. And so we're looking at the trellis. That's why... Before we send an RUF campus minister to the campus, uh, we run them through seminary right, and make them study for years to understand the apostles' teaching uh, so that they'll have a trellis to build on. Um, you just see Dan and Brittany and think, oh, they're so spiritual and awesome and they love us. and It's true, but man, there's a trellis there <laughs> and it's a good one and they've both been through it. Uh, Julie and I have too, right? We've been through the gauntlet to try to make sure there's a trellis there so we're apostolic in the way that we approach the faith. Nick is going to plant an Anglican church pretty soon. And he's, I, I say pejoratively, he's got to jump through some hoops before he can do that. But they're not hoops. They're good. They're trellis. They, he needs to do these things uh, because it will be a great benefit for the church. The being with Jesus part will thrive better because of what he's done to build the trellis. And he's having to leave, right, as I'm talking about. <laughs> With Elgin. But uh, that's why we're vetting out officers, right? That's why we do this. That's why we have terminology in our lives. Like we asked, we petitioned the Presbytery to be organized as a particular church. We have a long book of church order in our denomination. We have a long confession of faith in our denomination. And after a while, you'll roll your eyes and say, is it really needful to have all of this trellis? As soon as you run into trouble and you don't have a trellis, you think, oh, man, I would love to have a trellis. <laughs> Trellises are good. And uh, if we have a trellis and we don't have life with Jesus, you know, why cumbereth we the ground? There's no need for us. Uh, but if we want to be fruitful uh, for him as a church, if we want to be his conduits for grace in Midtown Tucson... We're going to need a trellis. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this church. It's such a delight to me and to Julie. Um, I pray that it would be a delight to the officers who put their shoulders under the load in this church. I pray that you would give us the people that we need. I pray that as they draw us all up into ministry and serving you in this place, that you would let us uh, both be with you and have a vantage point to see you at work. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.